This is The Value Proposition, a podcast by Barrow Hanley, where you'll find value-oriented investment strategies to institutional investors, mutual funds, and family offices. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of The Value Proposition. I'm your host, Amadi Enzi, with Barrow Hanley's global distribution team. Today in the studio, I have with me Pranay Laharia, Director and Equity Healthcare Analyst with the firm. We're going to talk about COVID-19, a follow-up on our previous podcast. We have a little bit more of the known, still a few unknowns, but hopefully Pranay will uh, clear some of that up for you. Pranay, thanks for uh, being here. It's great to have you. Great to see you in person again. Yeah. yeah Socially distance, of course. Absolutely. So Pranay, let's just jump right in. Can you give us an update on COVID-19 since we last spoke in July, sort of where we're at with the infection rates and other topics of question? Yeah, it's hard to believe, Amadi, that it's been five months since we last spoke. I know, it's good to see you again. Yeah, and since I saw you in person. (laughs) So there's been some good news and some not so good news over the last five months. So the good news first, we have some phenomenal success on the vaccine front, and I'm sure you'll dig into that later in the podcast. On the therapeutic side, we have made only minor improvements, and that's a good news. The bad news is that we are seeing a pretty big surge of new cases here in the U.S., Europe, and many other parts of the world. So that's a very quick update for you. Okay. Thank you for that update. Now, let's talk about the infections. Why are we seeing an uptick in the numbers, and is this truly the second wave that was predicted by healthcare experts? Well, we are definitely in the thick of what I would call the second wave. And depending on what you think about the wave we had in the summer, some might even call it the third wave. Some of this is quite predictable, yes. And I would say there are three main reasons in my mind that we are having this wave. The first one is simply weather. This should not be surprising to us. The virus replicates much better in cold temperature. This is quite a well-known fact. Uh, In our nasopharyngeal cavity, the viral replication close to zero degrees centigrade is almost an exponential level higher than it is in warm temperature. So the viral load is heavier in infected people in cold weather. That transmits it a little bit better. Also, in cold temperatures, we tend to congregate a little bit tighter. So we should expect transmissions to be higher and the spread to be faster in the cold weather. The second reason is just our human nature. A lot of us got super tired of the restrictions and we let our guard down. Uh, And the third reason is simply the challenge of policymakers. It's really tricky to manage the public health risk with the economic risk. That balance is really difficult to strike perfectly right. And at this point, it's fair to say that leading into this wave, we perhaps were a little more relaxed than we should have been. But look, the European countries are are starting to take action, and they have been, at least it appears at this point, been able to soften the curve. The U.S. authorities have also started to take action at a local level, and I would be hoping that in two to four weeks, we should start to see a little bending of curve even in the U.S., Yes, let's certainly hope so. So, Pranay, with with this second wave, are you seeing any differences than when when this virus first hit, specifically in the hospitalization rates and the mortality rates? 
Are they higher, about the same, or have they improved? Yeah, compared to the midsummer wave, the scary part of this latest wave of infections is that more and more elderly people are being infected. So in the summer wave, the largest group of infected people were in the 20 to 29 years of age. In the current wave, the largest group is actually over the age of 60. And that bodes really poorly for our hospitalization rates and the mortality rates that we might witness in the coming weeks and months. I want to just remind you that the infection fatality rate for a 75-year-old individual with some comorbidities is roughly 1 in 7, while that for a 20 to 29-year-old is closer to 1 in 1,000. So um, I think hospitalization rates are going to be substantially higher. Morbidities are going to be substantially higher. And that is why it is so important for us to keep this surge in infections in control. Otherwise, we will really stretch our healthcare system to the limit in this winter. And like I mentioned, restrictions by the local governments are rising. If those restrictions are not sufficient, we might have to consider a more draconian short-circuiting approach where we go into a six-week total shutdown just to short-circuit the virus. The tricky part is that there is a two- to four-week lag between the restrictions we put in and the observed infection rates in the society. That's certainly uh, an alarming fact. You know, as we record this right before the Thanksgiving holiday, you know, many of our colleagues and many of our friends and family members are traveling to go see their family. So, you know, with that kind of reinfection rates, certainly makes you think twice before you get on that plane to go home and get some of mom's pumpkin pie. But, you know, Pranay, I, I actually read maybe a few months ago about reinfections. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal about a Nevada man in his 20s who got COVID in early April and then was reinfected with COVID, I believe it was two months ago. So about a four to five month window between when he recovered from his initial infection and then when he was reinfected. So can you shed some light on the reinfection rates? and what that looks like, is it harder to recover the second time around? On the reinfection risk, Amadi, I'm actually quite uh, encouraged that 10 months into this pandemic in the Western world, while we have heard of some reinfections, there actually have been surprisingly small number of confirmed reinfections. That should make us feel somewhat good about our immunity lasting about at least 10 months, Uh, and I don't know, it could be two years, five years, we don't know, but probably more than 10 months at this point if we haven't heard of more reinfections. But theoretically, yes, reinfections are possible. Uh, They're possible in just about every disease. Uh, In this particular instance, we know that the antibodies for SARS-CoV-2 tend to fade relatively rapidly. The half-life is in that three to four-month range. So you would fear that perhaps by the 10th month, our antibody levels are particularly low. And at that point, it's important for our cellular immunity to be able to protect us from reinfections. Uh, We actually haven't been able to quantify quite yet. I think we'll find out over time how this disease affects our cellular immunity and if our cellular immunity can provide durable protection against a virus. As far as whether the second infection is going to be more severe or less. I think there are a lot of vectors that go into that. We, we, we don't know that all very clearly. 
I would say a big factor is likely to be the amount of viral exposure. If your first time around viral exposure was low, you might get a mild version of the disease. Second time around, if your viral exposure is uh, a thousand times more, you might get a more severe version. But those are variables that are still to be determined. Now that we're seeing people being reinfected, and I know that you mentioned a, about a 10-month window of the antibodies working or being effective, but if people can be reinfected, doesn't that negate the option of herd immunity? Well, it's a good question. I, I will say, first of all, we are 10 months into the pandemic and still the reinfections are quite low. So it is quite possible that our immunity, natural immunity lasts uh, well into the second year for most of the population. We just don't know the answer yet. Uh, maybe it's five years. Now, natural immunity or herd immunity through natural infection is has always been one of the least desirable way for the population to get immunity. Ideally, what you would want is a quick development of a healthy vaccine and safe vaccine that you can use to vaccinate everybody and not really have a lot of sick people that are dying in the hospitals. Okay. Now, you've mentioned the vaccine, which I'm sure everybody is eager to hear your comments on. But before we get to the vaccine, can we talk about the therapeutics? So how the therapeutics developed over the last eight to 10 months since the pandemic? Um, have they improved? Have they evolved? And what is the efficacy of the therapeutics currently in play to treat the virus and suppressing the death toll? Sadly, on the therapeutics front, over the last five months, we have made very minor progress. Some progress, but minor, I would say. We still have only one antiviral that has been approved, which is remdesivir. The feedback from the field has actually been somewhat mixed on this antiviral uh, for the severe and hospitalized cases. And my guess is that most of it has to do with uh, the stage of the disease at, at, at which this, this antiviral is being used. Most antivirals require dosing in early stages of the disease. And if we are saving this antiviral for late stages, perhaps it's almost too late for the antiviral to do its job. We already had steroids and anticoagulants that were being used in some cases in July, and we have a better understanding of what sort of cases that they would be helpful in. We have, in, in terms of protocol of care, made only some advancement in that we better understand that oxygenation, early oxygenation, non-invasive oxygenation, and pronation helps the survival rate. So you put all these things together, I would say we have uh, in the range of 30 to 40% reduction in infection fatality rate, which is not transformational by any means, but certainly helpful. In terms of the latest developments, I would say the biggest uh, development in the therapeutics front have been some recent clinical success of monoclonal antibodies. These are proving to be effective when they're given early in disease onset. But unfortunately, the supply of these antibodies is quite limited. Roche, which is the manufacturing partner for Regeneron's antibody cocktail, said that perhaps by March 2021, they might have the capacity to make 2 million doses annually of these antibody cocktails, which is not even sufficient for one week of global infections, leave alone 52 weeks of global infections. So I would say the cleanest way to emerge out of this pandemic is going to be through vaccination. 
All right. So let's address the million-dollar question, the vaccine. Can you explain for the audience what type of vaccine this is and at a high level, how will it work? Right. Well, the two leading vaccine candidates for which we have interim phase three data, and these are from Moderna and from BioNTech in partnership with Pfizer, they're both based on messenger RNA technology. This is a technology uh, which hasn't commercially been deployed quite yet, but it has been in development for about 30 years. In essence, what we are doing here is we take a messenger RNA, we cover it up with lipid particles, and we inject these, uh, these particles into human bodies. They quickly find their way into our human cells, and then they use our cellular machinery to produce large numbers of spike proteins that we find on the surface of SARS-CoV-2 virus. These proteins are then released into the bloodstream. Our body recognizes them as foreign objects and creates an immune response. Of course, as we have discussed before as well, there's the immediate response, which is the antibodies. And then there is the cellular response, which helps us protect ourselves in a more durable fashion. Both these vaccines are a two-dose regimen taken three to four weeks apart which actually makes the logistics a little more challenging to make sure that everybody takes the second dose. But if you do take the second dose, the short-term protection appears to be very, very compelling at about 95% protection uh, shortly after taking the second dose. But we don't know yet how the protection will fade over time. The other two leading candidates in phase three trials are J&J and AstraZeneca Oxford vaccines. Those are viral vector vaccines. Here, what we do is we take a common cold virus, an adenovirus. First, we make it non-replicating. Secondly, we engineer it to produce the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein instead of the other proteins that the virus would have made. Again, we inject the body with it. Find a, they find the way to the human cells, and they make these spike proteins. So ultimate effect of both these technologies is producing, artificially producing a lot of these spike proteins to which your human body mounts an immune response and therefore, in essence, vaccinates itself. These are also likely to be two-dose regimens. That's in a nutshell how they work. Okay. So going back to our last podcast, Pradeh, you explained to us that this is not the first coronavirus that we've seen. Right. You mentioned four sort of historic coronaviruses, many of which cause the common cold. So for this vaccine, how will it differ from other vaccines? Will it be an annual thing like the flu shot, or will it be a one and done similar to the vaccine for, let's say, measles? That is a phenomenal question, Amadi, and probably one of the biggest questions still to be answered. The short-term immunity looks really, really good with these vaccines, 95%. But of course, the short-term immunity is based primarily on antibodies. And we knew from early data that antibody response with these vaccines is very similar to recovered patients, their convalescent patients. So I'm not surprised to see the early immunity from these vaccines to be so good, uh, which is really compelling. The big question, which has also come up earlier in this podcast, is how durable is our protection, not only from the vaccines, but also from the natural infection. 
And my guess would be that the protection provided by the vaccines would be similar to the natural immunity that we might have because the cellular response that was shown in early data was shown to be similar in the vaccinated people as it was in the naturally occurring sick patients or recovered patients, I should say. So, look, is it one year? I don't know. Is it three years of immunity? I don't know. It would be nice to have three years of immunity so we can get the worldwide population vaccinated before revaccinations are required. But that is a question that still remains to be answered. And I think it will have a huge impact on the supply-demand balance in 2021, depending on how durable the response is. I agree. And that brings up another question. In our last podcast, you mentioned that this virus has mutated one, two, or maybe even three times. So what is going to be the efficacy of the vaccine if this virus continues to mutate? Amadi, on that front, I would say it's a real blessing that we have the messenger RNA technology ready in time for this pandemic. This technology is very, very quick to respond to any changes in mutations. Once you have a mutation genetically sequenced, you can take that sequence and tweak your messenger RNA, which is really a synthetic molecule. You can tweak it to produce a different conformation of the spike protein, which would be associated with the mutated virus. And you can do that in two to seven days. And after that, all you have to do is just manufacture the new mRNA. So our ability to respond to any mutations or drifts in the current SARS-CoV-2 virus, or even a future pandemic, is phenomenal now with this messenger RNA technology. It's a real blessing. That's good to know that it has the ability to be improved on or adjusted as this virus continues to mutate. So let's talk about side effects. You know, you mentioned the efficacy of 95%. That's, that's really good to know. But what are some of the side effects that we've seen with some of this clinical trial data? Yeah, well, short-term side effects have been almost non-existent with both these messenger RNA vaccines. The most we have seen so far is uh, fever and fatigue, both of them being relatively transient, and you would expect that in just about any vaccine in any case. Now, that's on the short-term side. We don't quite know what the long-term side effects are, and uh, these vaccines obviously will continue to be studied for one or two years, so we will have a better idea as time goes by as to what the long-term side effects are. Okay, so you've mentioned four different companies, each with their own candidate in late-stage trials of this vaccine. What are some of the differences in between these candidates? And in your opinion, does one have a competitive advantage over the other? Yeah, I think at this point, Amadi, we, we would be splitting hair if I were to try and pick one vaccine over the other. In early data, they all showed similar antibody response. They showed relatively similar cellular response. Uh, yes, in-field experience might be a little bit different with each vaccine, and maybe the minor differences in early data get more pronounced or enhanced in the field. But at this point, there's very little to differentiate these vaccines uh, from each other. I would say uh, the messenger RNA technology is quick to adapt to changes, uh, mutations in the virus, so that, that makes it a little bit better. The viral vector technologies actually use a, a vector 
to introduce the genetic coding into our body, which perhaps makes the technology, let's just say, it raises a question whether we can revaccinate using those technologies. But at this point, we are simply talking about the first vaccination. And the first vaccination, if the efficacy is very similar and safety is very similar, I think you would be hard-pressed to call one technology to be superior than the other. Okay. But again, we don't have the data yet, uh, the phase three data for AstraZeneca and J&J. Both of those vaccines ran into some minor difficulties in their phase three trial. So none of them were deemed to be material enough to stop the trials. But again, we will need to see the safety data and efficacy data from those trials before we can judge which ones are superior. Okay. And I know that the four candidates in the phase three trials are obviously the front runners, but out of the other 150 or so candidates, are there any other promising vaccines or clinical trials going on? Yeah, yeah. That, well, that's a good question. I would say, b- before I answer that, I would say that for any vaccine that hasn't yet entered phase three, I think one challenge is going to be uh, finding enough volunteers to enroll in a large phase three trial uh, similar in size to the, ex- the the ones where we have already gotten some interim data. And, and that's because we, we might have a commercial vaccine very so- very soon, and it's also somewhat unethical to be enrolling people in new vaccine trials when you actually have a commercial vaccine. So that will be one challenge. But yeah, there are other vaccination technologies that are part of the Project Warp Speed. The one that seems particularly interesting is an oral one that wouldn't require refrigeration. There's another one that is a nasal spray. The theory being that it would be more effective in reducing transmission because it would result in a stronger cellular response in a nasopharyngeal cavity, which is the primary method of transmission for SARS-CoV-2. Those are the ones that are worth calling out. Of course, we have the more traditional approaches also in development with an adjuvant, without an adjuvant, and we'll see how those those technologies progress. But I would say those are the two ones that are worth keeping an eye on. Okay, so you mentioned Operation Warp Speed. I, along with millions of other Americans and probably some people who are tuning into this podcast, saw the segment on 60 Minutes on Operation Warp Speed, where they interviewed General Perna, the four-star military general who was tasked with managing this deployment. For General Perna, what challenges do you foresee him facing and how can he overcome those challenges to effectively deploy this vaccine to the American public? Yeah, in my mind, the the biggest challenge is going to be to make sure that people, uh, people get their second dose. Prior history has suggested that there's substantial fall off in the number of people who actually come back for the second dose. We wouldn't want a case where 30% of the population doesn't show up for the second dose. 10 to 15% is generally acceptable, I would say, and that's what's required to really, uh, for the population to enjoy the benefit of the 95% protection rate. The second challenge that people talk about relate to the cold chain requirements with these vaccines. The press has uh, lashed on to the 70 minus 70 degree refrigeration rate. What is, is that what it is for yes, Pfizer? Yes, that's, that's what I've heard and, and read, that the vaccine needs to be stored at uh, negative 70 degrees Fahrenheit, which right. is quite cold. Yeah, that is quite cold. But 
The reality is that even, even I think that's referring to the Pfizer vaccine, even that is relatively stable for five days at normal refrigeration temperatures, which is two to eight degrees or two to five degrees centigrade. And we have a whole host of retail pharmacies, 40 to 50,000 here in the US, which have a refrigerator in, in, in place to be able to keep that vaccine ready for the population for four to five days. The reality is these vaccines will be consumed faster than they can be manufactured, and and storage really shouldn't really be an issue. Okay. Last but not least, Pernay, in your professional opinion, how viable is this vaccine given the circumstances of its approval and subsequent release? I'll follow up that question with personally. Will you take it? Amadi, the short-term data is so compelling both in terms of safety and protection, that I would absolutely want to take this vaccine as soon as it's made available to me. And the question that is still unanswered is, what is the long-term safety and efficacy? And by the time this vaccine becomes available to you and I, Amadi, we will have probably another six months of safety data. And if we don't find anything bad in that safety data, these are very, very compelling vaccinations. Certainly, any high-risk individual should consider it a no-brainer decision. Absolutely. And let, let's look at the math. So we have run trials with 30 to, 30 to 40,000 people, and we are, we are yet to find a single serious side effect. So your, your probability of a serious side effect is less than 1 in 15,000, right? But if you, if you get COVID-19 for population at large, on average, there's a one in 100 chance that you will die. And if you're over 75, there's a one in seven chance that you will die. Like, would you take a one in seven chance of death over less than one in 15,000 chance of a serious side effect? I mean, I wouldn't. I mean, sure wouldn't. I, I would be lining up to take this vaccine. I'll be right behind you. And, and it is really, I think, important for the health officials, for politicians, and for the media uh, it is their responsibility to inspire public confidence in these vaccinations because the data so far looks very, very compelling. Like, like we have discussed before, the only thing left to be answered is how durable is, is the response and what is the long-term safety. But right now, fingers crossed, Amadi, we could be back to normal by the end of 2021. Let's hope so. Well, Pranay, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for your insight. And for those of you listening... Thanks for tuning in to the second episode of The Value Proposition. The comments made during this podcast are the best judgments of an investment professional. They are subject to change as more information becomes available. They should not be taken as medical advice or scientific certainty. All opinions included in this podcast constitute Barrow Hanley's judgment as of the time of issuance of this report and are subject to change without notice. This podcast was prepared by Barrow Hanley with information as becomes available. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be an offer, solicitation, or recommendation with respect to the purchase or sale of any security, nor a recommendation of services supplied by any money management organization. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Barrow Hanley Mowinian Strauss is a value-oriented investment manager providing services to institutional clients. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be viewed as representative of all investments by the firm. This podcast includes certain forward-looking statements, including 
but not limited to Barrow Hanley's plans, projections, objectives, expectations, and intentions and other statements contained herein. These are not historical facts as well as statements identified by words such as expects, anticipate, intends, plans, believes, seeks, estimates, projects, or words of similar meaning. Such statements and opinions contained are based on Barrow Hanley's current beliefs or expectations and are subject to significant uncertainties and changes in circumstances, many beyond Barrow Hanley's control. Actual results may differ materially from these expectations due to changes in global, political, economic, business, competitive, market, and regulatory factors. Additional information regarding our strategies is available upon request. The Global Industry Classification Standard, GICS, was developed by and is exclusive property and a service mark of MSCI, Inc. MSCI and Standard Poor's, a division of the McGraw-Hill Companies, Incorporated, S&P, and is licensed for use by Barrow Hanley Millennium Strauss, LLC. Neither MSCI, S&P, nor any third party involved in making or compiling the GICS or any GICS classifications make any express or implied warranties or representations with respect to such standard or classification or results to be obtained by the use thereof. And all such parties hereby expressly disclaim all warranties of originality, accuracy, and completeness, merchantability, and fitness for a particular purpose with respect to any such standard or classification. Without limiting any of the foregoing, and in no event shall MSCI and SMP or any of their affiliates or any third party involved in making or compiling GICS or any GICS classifications have any ability for direct, indirect, special, punitive, consequential, or any other damages, including lost profits. Profits, even if noted of the possibility of such damages.